A reading from the book of Moses. Exodus 33, 12 through 23, in the NASB. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. A reading from Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1-10, through 10, NASB. Paul and Sylvanias and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come.
A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 22, 15 through 22, and the Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Let's go over here. Let's do this. And this. It is a little bit harder to drink left-handed. Not going to lie. All right, let's pray and get started. Lord, uh, Father, we glorify you here. May my words be pleasing to you. May they be true to your word, to your scriptures, to your character, to your heart. And may you uh, draw us closer to you. May we know you the way Moses knew you. Through your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, we're going to start with Matthew, then intermingle between Exodus and 1 Thessalonians, hopefully do a better job of actually getting through it this week, at least through my notes. I don't know how helpful these notes are actually to people. Uh, They're just my notes, so... (laughs) There's sometimes it's just like, uh, what does, like, it's just the actual Bible verse. Um, so is it, does everybody, like, get confused by, like, what Jesus is saying? Like, they're really, like, these in Matthew. Um, I think it's a pretty confusing, uh, or at least not, maybe not confusing, but it's hard to understand nowadays because we don't live the way, like, first century Judaism lived with Rome. So it's a little... So these Jews are asking, is it lawful to pay the tax? And Jesus says, yeah, pay the tax and vote Republican. And for some reason, they're still not mad. <laughs> and so if he, because doesn't, weren't they there to trap him, right? Isn't that what the scriptures say? So I've always, like when I read through that, like several times for multiple years, uh, you know, thinking, and not really understanding, just thinking, well, they went there to trap him, but doesn't he say, like, pay it? So why didn't they trap him? So why, like, that doesn't make any sense. And so uh, I kind of want to just go into some detail on that because it is confusing. And a lot of times I hear people say, mostly when I talk about a tax evasion scheme that I've thought of, they use that scripture verse, <laughs> render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And they're always trying to thwart my tax evasion schemes, which I will neither comment here or later uh, whether they're successful or not. So anyways, um, I think one thing that would be helpful to understand is there's five groups of Jews in first century Judaism. There's the Pharisees we know of, the Sadducees. There's the Herodians here, 
there's the Zealots, and then there's the Essenes. And it'd be really helpful for everyone to know what's the difference between those five. But for this uh, scripture, the Pharisees are in control of most of the synagogues, they're in control of uh, most of the council of the, of the Jewish council with the Sadducees. And they would be, uh, most of the things we're seeing here in, or throughout the Gospels is they're very legalistic, they're very works-based. Um, I can't remember if we read this or if it's coming up next week. Uh, but you know when Jesus, when his disciples are going through the fields and they're picking grain, and he says, on a Sabbath day, and they're saying, why are they doing what is unlawful to do? And when the law directly says that's very lawful to do, and Jesus doesn't answer like, well, you didn't read the scriptures because it says when someone's passing through your field, you can do this. And, and he doesn't even answer that way, which I always thought was like, you could just like, you know, if you're based on rules, like they should have read the rules. But anyways, um, the Pharisees are hyper-legalistic, always trying to trap Jesus in something rule-based, right? Even on the Sabbath, like you can't heal people on the Sabbath. You can't raise people from the dead on the Sabbath because uh, they're that legalistic. And the Herodians would be like your uh, evangelical conservatives who are in bed with the state, right? They think that, you know, this time in, in Rome um, and in Israel, that there's no king in Israel and they're colonized by Rome, so they have to obey the state. And uh, they're in bed with the state, essentially. Just think of like a modern-day uh, conservative Republican who uh, would identify as a Christian and thinks that the means to an end is through political government change. And that's the Herodians. And they hated each other. Okay? They hated each other. Both groups, all five groups of the Jews were against each other. And we see that especially through the, um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees sometimes when there's arguments. But uh, what brings the Herodians together with the Pharisees is a hatred towards Jesus. That's how they stay unified in this context, which is kind of funny, which is why he calls them hypocrites. But uh, so often we think that when Jesus is answering this question, he's just saying, pay the tax, and, but give God something else like pietism or prayers or whatever, and uh, just pay the tax and whatever. But that can't be what he's saying. That can't be how he's answering the question because of, of that very reason, because they came to trap him. They wanted to destroy him. And so uh, part of that is understanding what is the tribute. Does anybody kind of know what the tribute is? Anybody? Anybody? Uh, so the tribute was they had like a coin for Caesar. At this time, uh, Tiberius was Caesar of Rome. He was son of Augustus. And so Augustus declared to be God. He's son of God. He's now, you know, the, the Caesars declared to be deity because they're the highest in the state. And so part of the tribute, and I think this is the most common form of, of uh, explanation, but this is only part of it, is part of the tribute is you pay this yearly tax to Caesar, declaring him to be God. And even on the coin, you can look it up. Uh, it's a little debated on which coin it is that they're using here. Some translations say a denarius, uh, but some think it would be uh, a different, more uh, local Jewish coin or, or Israel central coin, not Jewish coin. Um, but either way, both of the coins would point towards the, the state being deity or the Caesar being deity. So that's a yearly tax 
that would go to Caesar uh, saying that he's deity. So is it lawful to pay this tax saying that the state is deity? Uh, the Pharisees said, no, you can't do that. The Herodians said, yeah, go ahead and do that. Right? So they're at odds, but they're coming together to trap him. So someone's going to be mad, uh, or they're both going to be happy when Jesus answers the question because they're trying to trap him. But, um, but either way, they would be, most of the people, most of the Jewish people in Israel would be saying, no, you can't pay the tax. And I don't know about the reasons why, but if you were to ask me, is it lawful to pay a tax? I would just say no, because I don't like paying taxes. <laughs> hey, do you want to pay more tax? No, right? That's the right answer, <laughs> I think. At least that's how I feel. So most of the people would be upset if he said, yes, pay taxes. And so here's the trap, the scheme that they're going after, is the people would be upset and turn against him right? If he says, yes, it's lawful to pay the tax, and you should. The Herodians and the Roman government would be against him and have a reason to persecute him, even heavier if he, if he said, uh, don't pay the tax, right? Because uh, think about Uncle Sam. Go down to your local government authorities and, and protest paying taxes and see how they like it. <laughs> That's how they get paid. That's how they make money. Uh, they'll usually say something like, well, you're not going to have any roads. You don't want any roads? Or something. They'll, whatever they use the tax money for or whatever. Uh, <laughs> or they'll scare you some way, right? Because they're the supplier of that. And that's especially in our current system. So that's the trap, right? But on top of that is the fact that this was, if you look in the, the census that uh, you know, when Jesus was a baby, Mary and Joseph had to go and do the census. They would pay the same tax and go, and it's a way to keep track of the people and to, and to see how much more they're going to tax them, right? So it's like a census that we take, which is, uh, I always think it's funny because we just did a census, and they tell you about how important it is because you're going to get these tax dollars, right? If you, you got to participate in the census so you can get those tax dollars. And I'm like, yeah. It's like, I'm not going to see any of it. Maybe my community will somehow get more roads or something. I don't know, but they try to, you know, say, we'll take this money to give you something. And so that's the trap. And so let's turn open to Matthew 22. And uh, first we're going to look at Luke 23. Talking about taxes, get me all fired up. Okay, here's one other thing to look at. And just keep this in mind as you read. I'm going to read Luke 23. Uh, verses 1 and 2. This is Jesus before Pilate uh, after they've already arrested him and put him through the, the Jewish council and now he's before Pilate in the morning. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Right? So that was one of the charges they brought against him. Now, do the Jews lie? Do they try to get false witnesses? Yes. <laughs> they what? Yeah. And so, uh, is that, do we see any other teachings of, in scripture that Jesus is saying, don't pay the tax? We don't. If there is, point it out to me. So, could they be lying? You, yes, maybe. Uh, could they be just using this as a 
Another, you know, kind of trump card to say, you need to persecute this guy. Yeah, they could, but we don't know because uh, it wasn't recorded and that's not the point of it, right? And so let's go back to Matthew 22. So why do they marvel? It says, you know, his answer is look at the inscription. Whose inscription is on it? It's Caesar's. And therefore render or give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Why do they marvel? Because here's what's going on. Jesus is pretty much saying, you're asking the wrong question. I know you're, he knows they're trying to trap him, but the point is you're asking the wrong question. I thought about like the best way to do this in an analogy. It'd be like asking, what's the best way, or how is abortion going to stop? Is it by voting a Republican ticket or going out and picketing at abortion mills? Well, that's the wrong question, right? You could make an argument that one over the other might help save more lives, and one over the other might help in some way end abortion, but what's going to end abortion is people getting convicted that they're murdering children and they want to repent. <laughs> you, we could outlaw it, and that would be good, and I'm all for that, but that's not going to change people's hearts. What's going to change abortion on a national level is the kingdom of God growing. And so what Jesus is doing here is not, say, is not answering the question in just a simple way. They marvel because he's saying, you're asking the wrong question. Who made this money? Whose inscription is on it? What is it? It's a piece of silver. What's it say? That Caesar is God? <laughs> what's, okay, so render to Caesar, what's Caesar's? Like, what makes this money valuable? Caesar, who made the money, who's giving it out for you to use and wants it back. You guys see the problem there? What makes your paper dollars valuable? The government says so. If they want to tax us more, you could just say, why do they tax us more? Why don't they just print off more like they do every day and put it in their own pocket? It's probably a valid question. I don't know. Maybe some of them do. I don't know. On the political scheme of what people do with their printed money uh, or the Federal Reserve. But he's saying, like, you're answering, you're asking the wrong question. And so, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. What's he saying there? What does God require? Sacrifice. Right? Obedience. He wants sacrifice. Maybe. Uh, so, go to Hosea 6, chapter 6, verse 6. It's like the third or second in the Minor Prophets. Second, right after Daniel. Hosea 6.6. 6. I'm reading the ESV, but I'll, there's kind of some other, I don't know what the NASB says. For I desire steadfast love, or I desire mercy, and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So that's an important verse in Matthew because he's already quoted it twice. So Matthew 9 and Matthew 9, 13, he quotes it when he calls Levi or Matthew the tax collector and Matthew follows him. 
and they're eating at his house, and there's tons of tax collectors and sinners there. Uh, welcome to Jesus' dinner parties, and probably prostitutes and things like that, because uh, that was common at, at his dinner parties. And so the Pharisees, or I, well, I don't know if it's, it's one, Jew, one group of the Jews, I'm assuming the Pharisees, are complaining to him about, about the people there, right? Why do you invite tax collectors and sinners? And he says, if you would have understood what this means, I desire mercy, then you would know and not sacrifice. You would understand why these people are here. And he says, because I've called to uh, uh, heal the, the sick, you know, like a physician or a, a sick person needs a physician, but a, a well person needs no one. And then Matthew 12, actually forget the context. We'll look at it real quick. Matthew 12, 7. Oh, it's when he's healing, healing on a Sabbath. Um, and does he quote the whole thing? Uh, no, he's after they're uh, getting on him about healing on the Sabbath. He says, quotes Hosea 6 again, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, right? Like they're getting all these rules and things against him uh, for breaking the Sabbath laws when he's healing people. And what is rendering to God is mercy, steadfast love, repentance, a contrite heart, a broken heart, right? We shall know Psalm 51. I'm hoping everybody has, have, has heard these before, but uh, in some form or fashion, 16, Psalm 51, 16 through 19, if you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not be despised. Be despised. You will not despise. Sorry. Do good in Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So there was this huge schism going on in Jerusalem and Israel about like, like they're wondering like whether we should pay taxes to Caesar. And Jesus is like, are you guys crazy? Like the, like you guys don't even have a king. You got nothing. You're enslaved. And you're worrying about like this like secondary or tertiary issue about whether you should render tribute to Caesar. And you hypocrites need to have broken hearts, like the sacrifices of God or a broken heart, a contrite spirit. That's what pleases the Lord. Mercy, on top of that, is quoting right out of Hosea, is having mercy. That's pleasing to the Lord. So what you should be seeking are those things, right? And so um, 1 Samuel 15, you guys can read that, says, it's a, it's a you know, quoting the same thing about, you know, when uh, King Saul is, is taking the, the kingdom away from him or the anointing, that uh, it's because he didn't desire mercy and sacrifice and, and brokenness. And so when Jesus is like asking these questions, like we instantly think like, we got to understand that uh, they were in awe of him. So he didn't just answer it like, yeah, pay taxes and... Both the red card or whatever. Republicans are red, right? 
Does that, anybody know? I'm glad nobody knows. <laughs> of like, that's not what he's saying. He's like totally, you know, pointing out that like they're not even asking the right question. Their minds aren't in the game. They don't know what they're talking about. And even when they're thinking about how to trap him, they can't even ask the right question. That's how far off they are. And so uh, let's go to Hebrews 10 real quick. And um, kind of wrap up this Matthew section. So I want to talk about Exodus. So this is obviously after Jesus' death burial, resurrection, ascension, coronation, and the outpouring of the Spirit. Uh, Hebrews 10, 1 through 10-ish. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true, to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year every year, make perfect those who draw near. Right? You're talking to Israel, who is in a sacrificial system, who still offered sacrifices in Jerusalem at the synagogue, or I'm sorry, at the temple, but they want to do that in the synagogue. And so, uh, to make perfect for those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, right? That was the purpose of the sacrifice, was to remind people that uh, the life is in the blood, and sin requires payment of blood, requires payment of life. And for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, this is quoting, uh, if you guys, I'm hoping everybody knows how to use their Bibles. I stole this Bible out of a pew of a church. Not this one, it was a different church, so it's okay. Uh, it was a long time ago, and I think they said I can have it. Um, they have a little, if you're using an ESV Pew Bible uh, has like a little B on it or a little letter, and it just says, okay, that's quoting from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. So, uh, consequently, Christ came into the world saying, quoting from Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he had said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices or offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. Right? Like what God like what they're saying, what Jesus is answering and saying is when he says, Give to God what is God's, when we have that thought that says, Oh, Jesus just said, pay the tax and do those things, we usually get into this pietism that says, Oh, give to God what is his and read your Bible and pray and whatever. And we usually just get that kind of weird legalism. Uh, but not that those things are bad. I'm not even saying paying taxes are bad. I'm just saying I don't like them. <laughs> And whatnot. But he's saying, like, when you give to God what is God's, he's saying your whole life is a sacrifice. Brokenness, contriteness, repentance, those are the foundations, right? When he's just kind of tying together a sacrifice, when he's saying, you know, I desire mercy or steadfast love and not sacrifice, he wants you to give everything. And you can read tons of different commentaries 
on, you know, just how, uh, like I actually just found this really helpful to read the Wikipedia article about what this says because number one, they quoted Rush Dooney as the first quote, which I really liked. Uh, and then, you know, they had the, and just how different people have different streams of Christian thought have interpreted this through the years. And um, there's even like a Mennonite pastor that they quote on there of saying um, that, you know, you know, we believe that we have the governing authorities that we have given by God. Maybe that's in judgment based on our government and maybe, you know, whatever, but that, that, that Jesus is the Lord of Lords. He appoints the powers. We could vote and do all these things that we should, but ultimately God's in control. Christ is king. He appoints leaders and Sometimes they tax us heavily because of, of nation sin, you know, our nation's sins or whatever. Um, but I did like a Mennonite pastor, I can't remember who the name was, but essentially said that, yes, we should pay the tax, um, but as far as extensive tax, and this is what Caesar would be asking as these heavy taxes, uh, we usually give the benefit of the doubt to God and not to the state. And so they use that as an explanation to uh, not pay overbearing taxes. But anyways, um, I thought it was extremely helpful just to read the different Christian thoughts throughout the ages just on that uh, scripture. And But what Jesus is showing, like he's in, he, remember in the storyline, in the timeline, he's in Jerusalem, he's flipped the tables, he's like a week away from Passover. And they're trying to trap him and trying to get him and he keeps evading like even in their best, they pull together like their best people and they're like, how can we get them? And should we pay taxes? And like, that was their best question. And he leaves them in awe. They've got like, they're speechless. They got nothing to say because they weren't even had the right, right mind about it. And so um, kind of transitioning into Exodus of like the people we're supposed to be is a people of, mercy, sacrifice, repentance, and um, same thing in following the, the storyline of Exodus of, just to give you guys an idea of, I think we're all pretty familiar, uh, especially in this kind of season of Exodus 33 when Moses is crying out that, like, don't take your presence from us. Don't take your, your presence. If you stop meeting with us, then... We don't, we're not going to go forward without you, God. And that's where we kind of need to live. And uh, if you just read verses 1 through 11 in Exodus 33, it talks about how Moses would regularly set up a tent outside of the camp, and the Lord would come down in a smoking, uh, in, a, in a pillar of cloud, and he would meet with Moses. Moses would meet with God. And it says, as a man meets with his friends. God would meet with Moses as like he's one of his friends. And Joshua was there. And all the people would rise up when they saw this. When they saw Moses walking out of the camp, everybody would wait at their doors. And they would look out and see Moses going out, which I'm sure is a long journey. I don't know uh, how long exactly it is. And they would see the Lord come down in this pillar of smoke and cloud. And Moses would meet with the Lord and talk with him. And Joshua was there ministering or, you know, as uh, doing whatever. And 
uh, and then it says like all the people would worship. They would just worship until Moses came back. And that's when it talks about Moses crying out, not letting uh, the, the presence of the Lord depart from the people. That's what makes us you know, distinct. When the Israelites are led out into Egypt, it's, they're led out with great power and signs, wonders, miracles, and right into the desert. And, and then they complain. And what's more, manna from heaven, quails, right? Um, you know, we don't see a relationship with the Lord throughout Scripture that doesn't have the manifest presence of the Lord in, in miraculous, deep ways. And all the, all the way through Scripture, especially throughout the, the book of Acts, right? We see the presence of the Lord um, thick with the people. But what is the Lord, or what is uh, Moses crying out? What is he praying? He's crying out. He's not saying, Lord, we've got this. He's not proud. He's not haughty. He's got what I would presume to be, and this is how I would see it, of, although it doesn't directly say these words, but Moses having a broken spirit. He's crying out to the Lord, who is going to lead us out into the promised land? How are we going to get there? We're not going to do it without the Lord. And, um, you know, you see that. I don't want to read through all of that First Thessalonians passage, but if we go there, just to read a couple of these scriptures. I didn't look close enough into the why we skipped Colossians in our reading and jumped to Thessalonians. I think it's because there's another church calendar day that we skipped that's in the middle of the last couple of weeks. But anyways, in First Thessalonians um, verse 4, it says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Right? And I, I don't think that's some theoretical, like it came in power and uh, it was just like a really good emotional meeting or something. I think people's lives were changed. Well, you could read, they, they became, they switched from becoming idolaters to becoming worshipers of the true God and throughout their idols. But in conviction from the Holy Spirit, in power from the Holy Spirit, uh, and through the apostles' preaching, is, and you can track with Thessalonians and Acts and see where it falls in line of where Paul went. And I can't remember exactly. I used to have it written somewhere. Maybe it's in an Acts in my Bible that I stole of, um, you know, what, was, what kind of miracles were happening, happening at Thessalonica. There was obviously a lot of persecution, and it says that here, you know, even in, in Paul's letter, is but this is the normal Christian life that we should strive for. Power in the Holy Spirit. Conviction of the Holy Spirit. And it says that people's lives were changed. This is normal when we preach the gospel. And um, that's what in this, you know, kind of time of visitation that, you know, if like if we want to see power, if we want to see God do miraculous things, it starts with repentance. It starts with brokenness. It starts with humility. It starts with repentance. It starts with crying out to the, to the Lord, don't leave us. Like, 
you know, I don't know everyone's experience with the Holy Spirit or, you know, in, in their walk with Christ or whatever, but like I cannot go back to going to church on Sunday and living a nominal life. Like I would rather die. Like it's not worth it. It's not worth living apart from like the active presence of the Lord to know him, like to meet with him. Like sometimes, I hope everybody has experience with with this, you know, with the Lord. Like sometimes, you know, if I'm just in my room praying and like, like I can just like close my eyes and it's like the Lord's like right there. And I know like theologically, like he's everywhere. He's, he's omnipresent. I know he was right here and he was right there and he was right there and he was over there and he was in China. Uh, I don't know if he's in Washington, D.C., but <laughs> at least not known that, that well. But, uh, but like when he's talking, like when Moses is in the cleft of the rock and he says, you can't meet me face to face, like Psalm, oh man, what Psalm is it? 27, David cries out, like one thing I've desired and that which I will seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple in verse four. And then in verse eight, he says, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, O Lord, your face do I seek. And that's what we're after, that closeness, that intimacy. And, you know, all these other things in our lives, like, um, you know, whether it's like bitterness or resentment or, like pornography addiction or ungratefulness or whatever, all of those start to pass away when we seek intimacy with the Lord and have his presence. And I guarantee you, if we were to cry out to meet the Lord face to face, like Moses did, that we would have uh, the same effect, the same power through the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what we're after. And I think that's what the normal Christian life, and I hope, I, don't, I didn't look at the scripture readings for uh, next week, but uh, 1 Thessalonians is uh, great to, to read, read through that and just couple that with the book of Acts of what happens, you know, and how Luke records that in Acts, and just see if like the gospel affects your life like it affected the Thessalonians. Do we move in power? Do we become imitators of the Lord and of, of those who preach the gospel to us, right? Or is it, or, you know, what's wrong if we're hearing the gospel? Is it the gospel we're hearing or is it, or is it us? It's because we're not broken or something. If we're not becoming those imitators, you know, not becoming an imitator of the Lord. And so um, I think that's huge. Like we can't, like playing church is uh, terrible. Like I can't think of like a worse fate in the world than um, not having deep intimacy with God. And so I think that's what, uh, where it starts is with repentance, conviction, brokenness. And, you know, if you, uh, I've always kind of wondered about this and John Gray kind of cleared it up for me on Sunday of, um, you know, and I think it's Psalm 118 something. It's quoted in Matthew. We'll read it at the end of chapter 23 because we're on 22, I think. Right? Or oh, yeah. Um, 
is, you know, when I think it's Psalm 118 where he says, you know, that whoever falls, you know, if this rock falls on you, you'll be crushed. And if you fall on this rock, you'll be broken. I've always thought like, huh, like kind of a weird, a weird way of saying just like brokenhearted or something. I don't know. And actually in John Gray's short explanation, you know, is that that cornerstone that is Christ, though we'd be broken, we land on him. And that's where he wants us, is broken on him. It's the foundation. And that's where we want to be because there's only one other option and that's crushed. And sometimes he'll crush us so we get broken and we'll land on him. And that's what we should be crying out for. That's what we should be seeking. That's the normal Christianity that, that the Lord wants us to live and to walk into is power, conviction, that should make us full of grace, full of mercy, full of truth, right? So amen, let's uh, pray and get to the party. <laughs> Lord, we pray that you would uh, convict us by the Holy Spirit. Your word promises that uh, if we cry out in Psalm 51, uh, that if we cry out that you would uh, create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us, take not your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from us, that you would um, grant that to us, that you are greatly pleased, as your word says, to give us the Holy Spirit. Lord, in real ways, we pray that you would bring us towards repentance of what we need to repent of. Keep us brokenhearted, Lord. Do not let us get haughty. Do not let us get proud. Let us humbly seek you, Lord, as we worship. Amen.